Jesus asks Bartimaeus, "What do you want me to do for you?" A few weeks ago, as I normally do on weekdays, I walked down to Mill Valley Market to pick up a sandwich for lunch, and I was standing at the deli counter. And as I am wont to do these days, I was dressed in my funny outfit. And there was a man at the counter who, probably not all that unusually, was sort of staring at me. <laughs> who is this guy? I could see the wheels turning. And he stared at me for the longest time, and then he finally came over and he said, "Are you a pastor?" And I said, "Well, yes." He said, "Which church are you a pastor of?" I said, "Well, Church of Our Savior, here in town." He said, "Well, where's that?" I said, "Well, it's..." Across from Old Mill School, it's up on Old Mill Street. He stood there and he thought for a minute. He said, "Oh yeah, I know where that is." He said, "Well, I'm a Baptist." He said, "And I used to be a member of Baptist Church over in Tiburon. Now I go to Calvary, a little bit further up the road." I said, "Oh, that's great. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you too. Oh, many blessings to you. Many blessings to you. Good." He got his sandwich. He went over to the cash register, and I was standing there waiting for my sandwich. Then he came back. <laughs> Then he came back. So he said, "What is the curse?" I was sort of taken aback. Looked around. <laughs> What, I, I don't quite understand the question. What is the curse that God came to cure? You know, he said. You know, if you think that Genesis is just a metaphor, then everything falls apart. There's nothing for God to redeem. It has to be literally true. And I thought, oh, I'm not going. To I just want my sandwich. You know, I I came to the market today to get my lunch so that I can go back to the office and sit quietly without being interrupted and enjoy my meal. And here we're having, you know, a major. It's great that we sung hymn 688 this morning. You know, that's the great hymn of the Protestant Reformation, right? So here we are duking it out for, you know, the same historical questions that have been asked for at least 500 years, if not longer. Well, so we got into it. Not badly, but um, how do we hold together that that sort of Literal understanding versus the metaphor. Do we think that metaphor means it's false? I said, you know, I, I'm not going there because if the text doesn't have meaning, it doesn't matter whether it's literally true or not. What matters is does it have meaning for us? And we talked about that. He said, oh, good answer. Good answer. <laughs> and my question to him was, is this a quiz? <laughs> Today we hear from the ending of the book of Job, and Job,、uh, many scholars argue, is probably one of the most ancient texts in all of Scripture. It may even predate Genesis in its origin, because it asks one of the most ancient questions in the human family, and that is, how do we reconcile the reality of human suffering? With a belief in a God who is in charge of all things, how do we reconcile that? How do we hold that together? And you know, one of the delightful and maddening things about Job, simultaneously, is he doesn't solve the problem. 
<laughs> doesn't solve it. You remember Job opens where Job is a faithful and righteous man. He offers sacrifice like any faithful ancient person would every day, even for the sins of his children that he does know, doesn't know anything about. He makes offering. And the story opens in the heavenly court where God is bragging on Job. Hmm. Have you seen my servant Job, how righteous he is? And Satan, who's sort of like the heavenly prosecutor, comes in and says, mm-hmm, yeah, wait until you take everything away from Job, and then you'll see how much he really is faithful to you. He will curse you to your face, God. God says, okay, take away everything that he has, just do not take away his life. And in one day, Job loses everything. It's all gone. And he is left destitute. All his children die in a natural calamity. And everything is stolen and taken away. Everything he has is gone. And still, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan comes back to God and says, well, that's nice. But I bet if you give him a disease and take away his health, he will curse you to your face. And God says, all right, you can do that, but don't take away his life. And so Job gets a dreaded skin disease, and he sits down in the dust, and he scrapes his sores with a pot shard, and he is miserable. That's how the story opens. Job has lost everything, even his health. And he is destitute in the dust. And then Job's wife comes along, and she's had enough by now. And she says, why don't you just curse God and die? You know? With spouses like this. And then Job's friends come along, and they pull out the traditional answer. Well, Job, you have done something wrong to deserve this. Let's figure out what it is. And for chapter after chapter, Job argues with them. With friends like this, who needs enemies, right? Job argues and argues and argues that he is justified before God because he has been righteous. And finally, last week, we get towards the end of Job, and God at last comes with great drama and says, excuse me? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? When I put the ocean into place? Excuse me? Is it your right to question the way things work? Were you there? Today, Job responds to God and admits in his own way a failure to understand. And God does not answer that question, does not help him to understand. Rather, Job embraces the humility that comes with living in to this profound paradox that we all must face in our own lives. And that is, how do we reconcile a God of love with the reality of suffering? 
And you see, that question isn't resolved in Job as much as it is lived into with humility. And then most scholars think somebody came along a little bit later and tacked on this nice ending just to tidy up the book where everything gets restored to Job. But many of us who have suffered know that that's not exactly how the story works, really. There's a lesson in there about humility and about holding paradox, something a number of us got together yesterday to talk about when we watched a Richard Rohr webcast here at the church. And Richard Rohr was wrestling with these fundamental paradoxes that are at the core of most religious traditions. And it is not in resolving those paradoxes that we demonstrate our faith, but it is living into them that we find ourselves opening to the mystery that is God. We have other paradoxes in today's readings. Did you hear that wonderful lesson from Hebrews about Jesus, who is our great high priest, and he is so far and removed from us sinners? How do we reconcile that with Jesus at the threshold of Jericho today, coming to a man who is blind, sitting in the dust and crying out to him? And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Paradox. This God who made everything and who knows so much more than we can possibly fathom, whose knowledge and vision and awareness is infinitely greater than ours, deigns on a dusty road in the first century to say to a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? A God who could be as far away from us as anything in the universe, further even, and yet who comes among us as a humble servant to ask us what we want. What do you want me to do for you? Our Baptist brother and I continued our conversation and left on reasonably good terms, but I was rattled. I got to Pete's Coffee, another traditional haunt on a weekday, and instead of putting down my credit card on the counter, I put down my sandwich. And the guy on the other side of the counter said, oh, well, thank you for bringing that to me. <laughs> then I realized how rattled I really was after having passed what you might call the Anabaptist Inquisition. But in reflecting back on it today, I wonder, did he and I get caught up in an old trap? And what would it have been like to, instead of arguing theology and biblical interpretation with him, to have asked, what can I do for you? to have engaged in relationship at that level. You know, the funny thing is, he never told me his name. I'm not sure I told him mine. What can I do for you?
Church of Our Savior, this is our season of stewardship, where we are reflecting on how we give to sustain not only the life of this community, but how we give out of ourselves in ministry to others. Jesus today shows us the prime example of that. Beyond all theological argumentation, beyond all of the sophisticated ways we think we need to behave in order for God to hear us. You know, I wonder about us Episcopalian sometimes. I think we sometimes fall into the trap of believing if we don't pray like Shakespeare, God will not hear us. But in fact, simply by being present to a God who loves us enough, who deigns to come into our midst and ask, what can I do for you? That says to me the quality and intimacy of relationship that we are asked to invite and cultivate and then carry forth in our ministry to one another and to the world out there. What does it mean to go to the least among us? Bartimaeus was a nobody. Did you notice how the people wanted him to shut up and be quiet, mind his place? on the side of the dusty road. There's a hint in Mark that he wasn't even inside the city. He was at the very edge. He should be quiet, out of sight and out of mind, in many ways. What does it mean when we go to the least of these and not say in our good Episcopal fashion, let us help you, but rather, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And maybe there we discover not only the God who loves us into being, but the God who loves us into service to a world in need. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.